Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. Today's episode is a little different. We are going to examine innovation and entrepreneurship through the lens of history. Joining us is Margaret O'Meara. Margaret is a historian of modern America who writes and teaches about the history of the technology industry, American politics, and the connections between the two. She's the Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. She's also the author of The Code, Silicon Valley, and the Remaking of America, and an opinion writer for the New York Times. Margaret, thank you so much for joining the Impact Drivers podcast. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. So can you talk about your research interests as a historian and what led you to writing The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America? Yeah, so I write about the history of 20th century America, and particularly the connection. I'm really interested in the connections between business and policy environments and politics and how the public and private sectors interact. And there's a really long and rich and interesting history of kind of American history is about the intersection of those two sectors. And the tech industry is a really interesting place to explore that, right? So tech often likes to, you know, think of tech as this free market entrepreneurial miracle, kind of apart from stodgy bureaucrats and politicians. And certainly a lot of tech leaders over time have kind of emphasized that part of the story. And that is part of the story. So what I wanted to show in this book was how those two worlds are interconnected and also how the thing that we think about as the new economy, which computer hardware and software kind of and tech and telecom um, encapsulate, uh, is actually really interrelated with the old economy, Um, partially because a lot of the investment flows of capital um, come from particularly in the early days came from old money and 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 there are sort of these tight connections between Washington DC Wall Street and Silicon Valley that have endured throughout time and are really critical in explaining how the valley and how the American tech industry evolved that I wanted to sort of lay out not only for a business audience but for a broader audience of tech users which these days is pretty much everyone Great. And so you wrote quite a bit about aspects of Silicon Valley that make it such a hotbed of innovation. Using the term Galapagos to describe it, I thought that was an interesting term. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? What made Silicon Valley a Galapagos? Yeah. Well, like the Galapagos Islands, which evolved very distinct species because of isolation, (laughs) um, uh, it's a metaphor I thought kind of um, uh, was appropriate. You know, Silicon Valley obviously has always had ties to other places, um, but part of its advantage and the, the, the development of a pretty distinctive business culture came from the fact that it was this formerly agricultural valley in quasi-rural slash suburban California. Um, it was a small community for a very long time, kind of off to the side of the main action in the 50s and 60s. The people who came there were, um, you know, not uh, necessarily people who were coming from money or from powerful families. One of the things that really struck me as I was doing the research for this book and talking to a lot of, I talked to a lot of people and interviewed a lot of people is that 
the kind of Valley pioneers, um, if you want to call them that, the first kind of generation of guys who come out in the 50s and 60s and are starting companies and are operators and then become VCs and later become very successful, they didn't start out with much. They were coming to California because they didn't have a a father who was a partner in a New York law firm. <laughs> they didn't right. have, you know, connections to get in the, on the management um, escalator at a Fortune 50 company. They were kids from middle-class families in Iowa and Texas who were scholarship kids who came out to, you know, partly because they could get a scholarship for a graduate degree at Stanford. You know, they were, they were not, um, it, it was this incredible place of, of upward mobility. It should be clear. It was upward mobility for, you know, all these people were native born white men. <laughs> so mm-hmm. people like the two of us were not included in that, that escalator right. of opportunity. Uh, but the, um, but you know, that is something that's, uh, that's really critical to the, to the story. And it's, and they were kind of off to the side and you kind of had to, you know, there wasn't anything else going on, right? So you think about other big cities. Boston's a great example, right? Boston was the tech capital for a very long time. But Boston is a city that has lots of indus- different industries, right? It's got academia. It's got, um, it's got other, you know, manufacturing industries, uh, and finance and other things going on. When you're down in Palo Alto in 1957, First of all, they're about, you know, like two places to go out to eat and they probably both close at 830, right? right. Um, you're living in these little suburban cul-de-sacs. You're, you know, your kids are playing little league with the people you work with. You're, it's a very, very tight knit community. And that, that separation and this sort of singular focus on electronics, small electronics was kind of the only game in town if you weren't growing fruit. <laughs> it was, that was the only thing that was going on pretty much. And, um, and that allowed like things like very specialized law firms to develop, um, marketing firms. Like, so part of the Galapagos isn't just engineering. It isn't just a concentration of tech talent. And it's also a concentration of very specific service industries that are serving this very kind of weird niche business that small electronics was at the time. The other important Sort of corollary of that era is that a lot of the business had to do with defense work, that the government was a major, major customer and contractor. In fact, the biggest employer in the Valley from the 1950s through the middle of the 80s was Lockheed, now Lockheed Martin, um, Lockheed Missiles in Space, which is down in Sunnyvale. And that had the biggest employment base and was a huge driver of the economy, kind of brought so many people out there and some of those people like worked at Lockheed and then left to start their own companies. And it's kind of this hidden story, partially because they were doing almost everything was defense work and almost all of it was top secret. So no one could talk Mm. about it. (laughs) Like there were no fortune magazine cover stories on the genius engineers of Lockheed, you know, because they were doing super, super, they were doing nuclear submarines, right? They couldn't, or satellite technology, like they couldn't talk about it even to their families. So there's this really interesting, um, you know, it was this, you know, now the Valley and tech generally is so center, central to our lives. And it's on the front page of the business section. You know, the New York Times didn't have a specialized tech reporter until the early nineties. Like it was just not the, it was not the main event. The Wall Street Journal wouldn't even write about companies that weren't public companies. So in the seventies, there were maybe like two or three that actually made the journal. Like it's just a really, really different world. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
that that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, that term now that I hear yeah, you describe yeah. it that way. Yeah. So so you just talked about how government was this massive employer, mm-hmm. but yeah. also uh, there was this major flow of funding that you talk about. Mm-hmm. It repeatedly comes up that funding into research institutions was mm-hmm. the source of innovation. And um, that driver being also war. Yes. Um, so, so can you talk about what those booms of funding meant um, yeah. to the area and what were the innovations you saw that came out of that? Yeah. So I call the federal government the Valley, effectively the Valley's first venture capitalist. Obviously, right. there were very early VC firms there too and private investors, but but what the, you know, what the really interesting thing about this spending, it's not just that it came, it, it wasn't just, just the spending itself, but it was how it was spent. So the U.S. gets into the research and development business, the science and tech business in a big way in, during the Cold War for the first time. So before that, you didn't have, you know, the National Science Foundation was created in 1950. Before that, you didn't have uh, academic researchers kind of applying to the federal government for big grants like they do now. Um, and, and the, the U.S. government was not just funding kind of the development of very specific weapon systems, which that was a lot of money flowing there, but also just giving money to science and giving money to scientific education and to universities. And because this is all growing, so this is a giant government effort that's happening in the early 1950s. Okay. What else is going on in the early 1950s? That would be, you know, the era of McCarthyism of, when communism, the communist menace, socialism is the great enemy of the United States, right? So the last thing that Presidents Truman and Eisenhower are going to do are build like this giant centralized top down, like we're going to house all of this science and tech in government agencies. No, we are instead going to give grants to universities, public and private. We're going to um, give uh, contracts to private industries, private companies from the big, big name defense contractors like Boeing and Lockheed to then contractors and subcontractors that are smaller firms, including some of the pioneering startups of the Valley, like these iconic names that, you know, kind of are synonymous with this is how the Valley got its start. They also got their start with this book of business that was had to do with you know, government work. Um, so but the decentralized nature of it that kind of allowed a lot of private enterprise, a private market to grow, a very competitive market to grow on top of this federal funding. And also de- decentralizing through institutions like the University of California, Berkeley and Stanford University in particular kind of created this, um, these laboratories of innovation and creativity and kind of human capital production, which is really the main additive, you know, that Stanford and Berkeley, it's people, right? Right. They're spinning off amazing people. Uh, That's how you have this really interesting symbiotic relationship between public and private that sometimes is missed when people are either saying, oh, no, 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 it was just the entrepreneurs. The more the government got involved, the worse it was. When the government was out of the way, it was all good. And then on the flip side, people kind of counter it and say, no, there was all this defense work. Like You need to give the government credit. And the, my answer to that is yes and, right? So you, you guys are both right. <laughs> like the, the two things together are, and the way that they worked is so critical to the story. And I think that's super important when we think about, you know, what does, where does government add value? I think where we, you know, what we see from the fifties and sixties, um, well, look, as you pointed out, the whole, the whole reason the U.S. government's spending so much money is it's war. It's the cold war. It's competition with the Soviets. Um, 
it would be lovely if <laughs> if we as a society could decide to spend a lot of money on advanced innovation without having <laughs> sort of geopolitical right. aims, but that usually is is you know provides a rationale. But what government funding did is it provided funding for blue sky technologies that were there was no commercial market for, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a founder and you have a, you're not going to build a product that you there's nowhere to sell. Like you know, you, yes, you can create the market, that's fine. But if there's truly no market, like for an advanced um, advanced semiconductor technology in the early '60s, there's like a handful of really large companies that might be clients for like, but there really isn't. And what the government system, this sort of system of federal funding does is it creates a customer base in universities with scientific sort of, you know, scientific computing. And really importantly, you have the space race. And what do you need to get Mm -hmm. astronauts to the moon? You need super light, super fast, very sophisticated electronic devices. Um, And so the chips that basically sent the Apollo astronauts into space were, you know, manufactured by Fairchild Semiconductor, National Semiconductor, all these kind of legendary born in the valley firms that now have a market for their product. And that allows them to then, once you scale up and have this, you know, you have your 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 federal business, then you can scale up, it drives the price down, then you can build a commercial business on top of it. Because the first integrated circuits were like thousands and thousands of dollars, like nobody could buy them. But NASA could. They're like, okay, <laughs> we're going to, you know, we got to get to the moon by the end of the decade. We're on it. We'll, we'll spend whatever it takes. Right. So it's the flow of the money into research institutions. And then that there's also an early mm-hmm. customer, a government agency. Yeah. 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 So it's a real, um, you know, and there's a, and, and it's such a new technology that it, there isn't already kind of a prime contractor set up to be the, mm-hmm. the fat cat that gets the contract. Right. So, um, that was, you know, so you have a lot of these little firms that were concentrated in, mostly in the valley that are just, you know, competing with one another for this business. And so the, a competitive marketplace grows like that, that again, sets them up to be very competitive in as they move into the commercial space and then commercialize and then scale. Yeah. And then so you also uh, bring up Johnson's Small Business Investment Act in mm-hmm. the book. Yeah. And I was really interested to learn about that the yeah. jumpstart it gave the venture capital industry. So can you talk about how those small business investment companies worked and yeah. what that what the impact of that was? Yeah, the SBIC, it's one of those little those little programs that you like start digging into and you're like, wow. And the other thing that I loved in sort of discovering about this, you know, when I'd interview some of these, you know, veteran venture capitalists who were there at the very beginning, who were like, you know, they're free market entrepreneurial guys. They're not what, they're not ones to be like, we like big government programs. In fact, they would say the opposite, right? Right. They would point out like this thing was amazing. And what it was, it was a small program. It was really, so Dwight Eisenhower was president. He loved small business. Lyndon Johnson was Senate Majority Leader. He also saw that it was good politics to kind of promote this thing. And it essentially created this fund that if you, you, they would match and originally match two to one. If you had some, if you amassed some private capital, the government would give, it was sort of a combination of loans and grants, but it was super generous. <laughs> it was like, um, after a while, they kind of curbed it because it was getting abused a little bit. But mm. initially you have, so you have these young guys out here in the Valley for one who are, again, they're not from money. Um, and they, and they might know or work for some rich people, but they don't have capital themselves. 
but it created an entry point where you could have like, you basically just, if you could get a, you could start a fund with about a third of the capital you needed, you get the other two thirds from the Fed, this federal program. Um, and this is established in 1958. Um, and it wasn't just tech, uh, you know, it wasn't tech focused. It was kind of everything. But the idea was let's, you know, banks, mainline banks were not giving, they weren't investing in electronics firms. Like this was not, these were, this was very risky business. Right. So it created a pool of capital for um, investors and entrepreneurs that could not access traditional pools of capital. It was it was pretty pretty audacious, and um, and so it becomes this kind of the, some of the early you know these early VCs kind of born in the valley VCs kind of start with SBIC funds, um, and then they get to a certain scale and they kind of move away from it partially because you know when you are doing business with the government there is you know bureaucracy involved and. You know, right. when you don't have to do it, you, but it was this, again, like these, where you have these injections that allow people that aren't, don't already have money and power to get in the game. That's really additive. I mean, that's an example of, you know, where you can kind of just put your thumb on the scale a little bit to open up opportunity and not just make, make sure it's not just the same people doing the same stuff again and again. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it had a big impact as far as. Mm-hmm opening up investment. Yeah. We haven't really seen anything like that since then, right? There've been there I mean there were different programs in the 80s and I mean there've been there've been other forays into it. I think that what made it so powerful was that it was kind of at the moment it was kind of hitting right at the right moment, right where you have this emerging um, emerging market that hasn't quite taken shape. There's mm-hmm. a lot of and and then it kind of gets, you know, it, it, it kind of creates a, it's sort of at the beginning of, of sort of accelerated period where suddenly the, the private markets get really interested in electronics, partially because of the space race. Um, and like in the, by the middle of the 1960s, you have a kind of, um, you know, what they were, uh, what analysts would call kind of go-go space age stocks on Wall Street. Like people are like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to invest in those space age stocks. So anything that had to do with rockets or missiles or something like that. But there really wasn't, it was, I think, so it's a matter of timing and it was a matter of, um, yeah, there was just more, op- there were a lot of opportunities out there that were ready to be taken advantage of. And, and, um, you know, but I, again, I think it's, you know, a, an example of, you know, government where government can be really additive is again, kind of pushing the market in directions where there isn't ob- obviously market opportunity yet, where it's just a little too risky. Mm-hmm. Um, and government doesn't always like to take risks. And I think this was something that was distinctive about the post-war moment is that the, first of all, the U S is riding high, right? It's an industrial colossus. It's, you know, superpower overseas competition is at that point negligible. Prosperity is growing. Everyone's like, okay, this whole nation is up and to the right. Like our biggest problems are like too much affluence. Like it's honestly just another world. And there was also immense amount of faith. We forget that there was just a lot of faith in government kind of being a, a problem solver and being a kind of, and that technology itself was going to be something that brought us into the future. There was not a lot of ambivalence about, well, maybe this, all this technology might have a downside. Like there wasn't any of that. So that, you know, this is, a, I think this is another reason I wrote the book because, uh, you know, oftentimes we write about, we look at tech kind of in isolation, right? We look at one entrepreneur, we look at one company, um, oftentimes it's not kind of long historical narratives in part because tech's fast moving and forward thinking and, 
Um, things move pretty fast and history doesn't seem relevant. It's like a dusty plaque on a wall and whatever we've moved on from that. And what I wanted to show was one that history does matter that actually these layers of an onion kind of are all <laughs> built on each other. And also that it's kind of, you can't understand what's going on in the industry without understanding the political and social history that's going on more broadly. Right. Yeah. So kind of these things are, you know, to understand why did a certain business take off or why did something fail? You have to put it in this broader context and kind of, and, and tech, you know, one, a secret of tech success is often just heads down. I'm just focusing on the product and focusing on that. Like I'm not going to get distracted by all the noise around me, um, which is important. And that's a, that's a value. Um, but it also, if we're trying to kind of retrospectively understand it and think strategically about where the opportunities lie going forward, you kind of have to contextualize. You'd be like, okay, so when they were heads down, what else was going on? Like what was actually, helping them succeed that they didn't realize. Um, and, and that's the fun stuff about what I do. Like it's these sort of serendipitous, you know, happy accidents and also, Oh, that's too bad. You know, right, right idea, wrong time. So, so kind of building off of that, you know, we have these big threats in the world right now with climate change and now we're dealing with this pandemic and clearly we're not didn't have all the innovations in, in place that we ideally would have had mm-hmm. to address this better. Why do you think we didn't see the government move? Like what, what does history show us about how we were not able to, or have not so far really been able to invest in these areas the way we ideally mm-hmm. would have? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we're kind of coming off 40 years of, um, more really 50 years of declining faith in government in the U.S. Um, that it kind of cuts across the political spectrum. And, and I see it kind of looking at it with my history professor of hat on is really having its roots in, well, pretty deep roots that go pretty far back. There's been skepticism about centralized authority since the American Revolution. That's why we had a revolution. <laughs> it's all about getting rid of King George. But if you go back just 50 years to the, to Vietnam and Watergate and this sort of, you know, moments of betrayal by our elected leaders on at the when when an, a very optimistic america realized that okay the people in charge aren't telling us the full story and and at the same time the prosperity of the post-war period is starting to crumble and its fault lines are starting to rip apart and um and the inequities that were there underneath <laughs> the whole time came, I mean, in a way, 1968 and 2020 have a lot in common and in mm. similarly kind of, you know, those problems were already there, but everyone suddenly realized them and, and it becomes this, you know, sort of sources of conflict and, and, and polarization. I think that, but the consequence of that, you know, having blind faith and unquestioning faith in progress and leaders is, you know, not healthy nor is kind of papering over the inequities in society. At the same time, having this reflexive skepticism and kind of antipathy about government's capability to do anything. And in the value of expertise, we've really devalued public sector expertise as we've elevated private sector expertise, right? Mm -hmm. So we like, we're like, Steve Jobs is a genius. You know, these other kind of founders and entrepreneurs are these geniuses. These are the people from whom we should learn and who we should emulate. And without discounting the remarkable qualities and traits that made these people very successful in business. Um, although one of the things I do talk about in the book, I talk about Steve Jobs a lot and other mm-hmm. people like that, but I also talk about like 
the, the ecosystem around people like Steve Jobs that enabled him and his company to do what they did. Like, you know, there's no lone genius. It's always, always a bigger story. But when you devalue public sector expertise and you actually defund public sector capacity to address the, like prepare for pandemics, for example, um, then you find yourself where we found ourselves in 2020 without mm. that capacity. And then with this great distrust, when even when someone who is an expert, you know, saying trust, you know, wear a mask, do these things. Um, it's this culmination and we really need to restore that trust and rebuild capacity. I don't think, you know, sometimes, um, I think people in tech are like, well, let's build a new thing, right? So the government's, this agency isn't working. So let's do even, even people in tech who are kind of, you know, um, friendly to the, to the idea of, you know, we need expanded, a more functional government and expanded capacity. There's sort of this idea of like, well, the old, old thing doesn't work. Let's rebuild the new. And I actually would say, okay, why don't you build on what you have? Like it's hard to, there's actually immense underutilized capacity that's already in the government. Part of it is at, attitudinal. Like we need to recognize, okay, there's some super smart people. Like the, the, there's this whole kind of apolitical permanent civil service that's full of really, you know, people who have knowledge who could do this if they were just empowered to, you know, be at the table and help map out proactive strategies. Um, so it's interesting. I'm watching and I'm going to be looking closely next year. It's just, I'm sort of at the U S alone at what a change in leadership at the executive branch level is going to mean, you know, how much that's going to change. And, and also just the demands of this crisis, um, how much it's going to open up a kind of new, more proactive, more, more space for government to take a bigger role um, I don't think, even though some, you know, political critics may say, oh, it's, you know, socialism. I think <laughs> there's, there's never been, um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of overstating and kind of getting, getting a little too hyperactive about, <laughs> about what actually is going on. I think it's a kind of, uh, I think where, where Americans of American leaders of all political stripes are, are about like, how do we support capitalism and, and have different ideas about what that sort of capitalism should look like. Right. Um, and, um, but, you know, business sometimes, business leaders sometimes will have this kind of reflexive, like, oh, government, government can't do more. And actually, I think it just government needs, can do, can do a lot more and can do a lot more. I think the history of the industry itself shows where you have this collaborative relationship. It's yeah. super good. I mean, it's good for everybody. Right. So in a way, I mean, it's like the industry's hurting itself in a way by developing this perspective, maybe. Yeah. But I, 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 it would just be help. Yeah. It would be more helpful. Like you, you know, I think there's, there just needs to be a realism about the fact that these two sectors are always intertwined. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they are. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the tech companies continue to have giant federal business. In fact, it's growing, you know, mm. Amazon, Microsoft, like all the big cloud providers have a massive, you know, they do business with the national security agencies and other government agencies. Like, you know, it's not the main part of their business, but it's a lot. It's enough yeah. for them to care a lot. And then there are other companies, a whole host of other companies that are very, very defense centric among other things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just, we need to recognize that. And, and, and I think that also it becomes less of a threat when you think about say the regulation of tech com of internet companies in particular, by recognizing there's always been a government role. It isn't like government was gone and now they're going to come in and mess with things. Like you're kind of a product of government regulation or choices not to regulate. So, right. 
you know, recognize that you're part of this system and think about, look, and I, and I point out a lot, <laughs> I, I, a lot these days as people talk about antitrust enforcement, I'm like, you know, John Rock, John D. Rockefeller made more money after Standard Oil was broken up by the government mm. because his different businesses together oh. <laughs> is, you know, so, you know, I don't know, like, you know, I'm not saying we should say, make sure that Jeff Bezos earns more money. I think he's fine. Right. Um, <laughs> but we really have, you know, we're, we're kind of at this very super imbalanced place where we've, you know, so much of the cap, so much of the wealth has accrued to a small slice of the population and a small slice of companies, even in tech, like we have this very unbalanced, uh, you know, being a startup, founder has a very different pathway and a different mm -hmm. environment and different incentives, market incentives and demands from their investors than they did even 10 or 20 years ago, because it's not about the path to an IPO. It's a path to acquisition or it's a path to, you know, it's a very, and it also constrains the imagination about, okay, what can be built what do we care about and how can we take this incredible capacity of the people in this industry and apply it to these big, big problems? And I think that's where government can, again, be additive. If you have kind of the SBIC model, you know, taken to scale, you know, or, or the moonshot model applied to climate change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that will be, I'll be watching by, you know, there's talk of, you know, Biden and clean tech and clean tech 2.0. And a lot of venture investors are getting really excited about that possibility. Um, you know, I, I think we're going to see more of that. And that's, that will kind of shift, shift where the incentives and opportunities lie. Okay. So to shift, shift gears a little bit for a moment. So you, you paint the picture of Silicon Valley being a boys club from the beginning, for example, with venture capital meetings taking place in a venue where women weren't even allowed. Mm -hmm. um, even today, women are still fighting for an equal footing in tech and entrepreneurship, more so than in other industries. So what does the history of Silicon Valley tell us about the gender imbalance we see mm -hmm. still today? Well, the bottom line is that the gender balance has been 75 years in the making, so it's not going to change overnight. Right, right. <laughs> um, and, but the other, I think, big insight is that, you know, look, um, the people, this, the, the winners of the past, the, the most recent generation get to pick the winners of the next. Mm. And one of Silicon Valley's immense advantages is its tightly networked culture that starts because it started off as this Galapagos, this little sort of prune growing nowheresville that no one paid attention to and where everyone was hanging out all the time. So you were, you know, hiring people you knew and those, those bonds of, familiarity and trust were actually pretty critical in the, the very risky business of investing in untested technology and, in, and, and investing in very young founders. And, um, and that kind of, that created a blind spot that created, um, you know, no one, no one sat down in the boardroom and put a sign on the door saying no girls allowed, but essentially it was, it was a very, you know, and I think that the the notion of Silicon Valley as a so-called meritocracy or the idea that, you know, we're a place where it just matters if you're a good engineer or you just do good work. That's all we care about. Um, that and that stemmed from the fact that the, the original generations of, of guys who were there were kind of not from very, you know, prestigious backgrounds. They were again, they kind of made it on their own. They truly were like they they were self-made men in many mm -hmm. in many ways, with a few exceptions. Um, but they weren't recognizing the privilege that they had coming into it because of 
that, that they were white men. <laughs> and in post-war America, that was a big privilege. You know, you had a whole you know, engineering programs wouldn't let women in. Like, right. so you can't, if you're just saying we want the best engineers, well, if, if a, you know, MIT's best computer science professors won't have women in their classroom, I don't want to single out MIT, but you know, the, the, if you have this, this climate where you could have rampant discrimination, gender discrimination, and so people aren't getting simply aren't in the room. And, and the, you know, John Doerr, Kleiner Perkins kind of famously got in trouble a while back by kind of saying off the cuff at a, at a tech conference, well, I, I kind of look for pattern recognition when I, with, with investments, uh, yeah. guys in hoodies, antisocial guys in hoodies. And, you know, he kind of said the quiet part out loud. So here's where I see kind of an opening and that I, th- where I think are, things are changing. So if the winners of one generation pick the winners of the next, the last 10 years have generated an immense amount of personal and corporate wealth in Silicon Valley. And some of that wealth has gone to women and people of color or people mm. from underrepresented minorities, because you know what? They happened to go to work at Facebook 2005 or they right. were, right. Um, and so they kind of get in the network and, and those, some of those people are becoming angels. They're becoming, they're starting their own firms, their own funds. And uh, within them are people who are very consciously saying, I am going to invest in black founders, or I am going to invest in female founders or this percentage. And so that has not been something that's been part of the scene on the Valley kind of ever until the last, it's really only last like six, seven years that we've even talked this much about the, the gender imbalances that it, and racial imbalances that have been there since the beginning. Right. I found when I was doing my research, I had this newsletter from kind of early, kind of mid seventies, early personal computer, you know, homebrew days where (laughs) there were these women who were like this sort of subset. It was a computer club in LA and there were sort of a women in it. And they were um, kind of wrote a little article in the club newsletter being like, there are not enough women. Like, this is terrible. This whole, you know, the, the high school computer labs are, are, you know, they're in the basement and it's all the boys and the girls aren't allowed. And we need more women in this really cool space. And, you know, that was a little dusty newsletter that I found in a file in the Stanford archives. Like it was never like on the pages of the New York times. Right. Right. So, uh, it's going to take a long time, but it's uh, the needle is, is moving. The thing that worries me is with COVID, the kind of disruptions of 2020 have mm-hmm. made the big companies even stronger have, you know, the, the mud, the deal flows are flowing like even more. So that's super interesting. If the, if capital isn't quite as abundant, that's when people get more cautious and they're like, I'd like some pattern recognition, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and there's less willingness to, and why should it be, you know, you're taking a bet on someone who happens to be of a different gender than most of the people who've done what they, it's, it's absolutely bonkers, but nonetheless, VCs are way more cautious than they would like to let on. And they, mm-hmm. that's why they're successful. Like it is a very risky business and they tend to follow the crowd more than they would like to admit. Well, hopefully you're right. We're starting to, <laughs> we'll be on our path to a shift. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You point out that new companies looking to make money began to see that one of the best ways to do so was to get acquired by one of the giants. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that by mid-2018, Facebook had made 67 acquisitions, Amazon had made 91, and Google had made 214, mm-hmm. which seems this seems to be an unprecedented shift in the entrepreneurship yeah. ecosystem. So yeah. can you talk about that and what you think the implications of that are? Yeah, it's unprecedented in Silicon Valley history. There have always been 
big companies, obviously. Um, it hasn't always been like a bunch of little startups. Like it's been, mm-hmm. been companies of every size. Mm-hmm. But the, the acquisition, kind of the kind of M&A is a defining feature of this is, I mean, this is how large companies are innovating because they're acquiring talent and they're acquiring technologies. Um, there, and it's also, you know, you have this, and, and it's happening at the same time that capital markets, global capital markets have just had immense amounts of cash sloshing around them for various reasons since the Great Recession. And so you have, you know, along with that, you have companies like Uber, for example, that stay private for a really long time. And and funding rounds go from like, it used to be like people had seed and A, B, and C, and maybe they went public, you know, um, like Netscape went public at, I want to, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but it was like, maybe they got to an E round, possibly. It might have been less, but anyway, they, and they were 18 months old. Um, and, and Uber had like, <laughs> like, I've, I've, I think they almost ran out of the alphabet. They had so many rounds. Like, how could, can you really call it, you know, an, 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 an N round venture round? Like, that's very late stage. And, yeah. and the investors are, you know, it's SoftBank, but it's also, you know, it's a lot of, non-traditional investors. There's a lot of money chasing tech. So those two dynamics, you know, look, the public markets come with, you know, come to downsides. Um, it comes with scrutiny, but you know what? That daylight can be really good. And what we've mm-hmm. seen recently is that, you know, excesses in corporate governance have been allowed to go on when you don't have, you know, that's why you have these S1s that come out and all the reporters and then total nerds like me, like read every word. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing this. You know, uh, you know, I still read the WeWork S1 for entertainment. Um, but it was, you know, when you don't have that kind of trans forced transparency, and then you also don't have the, on the other flip side, when you have all of this acquisition, you don't have companies that are I don't know. You're, you're losing your a kind of a class of founders in some way, right? You have founders mm-hmm. that kind of get to a certain point and then before they really get to the next big growth period, both for their business and for them personally, they get acquired and then they're like, okay, I'm like, I'm sort of a exact in this big company and I'm just going to wait till the, the bare minimum and then I'm going to leave. And that I, I think is sort of stunts the ecosystem and also, and then cons- and consolidates so much of the technological innovation and potential in these few places, which can be dangerous. And, and I think another historical lesson is that of Detroit, where you have like the big three automakers, you know, Detroit was the most innovative place in the world in the 19 teens and 1920s. Like, mm. Amazing stuff. All these companies. Um, the 1930s, you know, there's this sort of severe contraction and consolidation and kind of the big three effectively emerge. Like you go from, cause Detroit automakers used to, there used to be like hundreds of little car companies in the beginning, like tons of them, startup central, like all these different brands. And then they get consolidated and then, you know, bought up by the big guys like General Motors is made up of all these different, um, standalone, one standalone companies. And, and then, um, at a time, you know, just as the 2020 has made the big five even bigger and richer and consolidated mm-hmm. market share, then you have um, in the 1930s during the Great Depression that the same thing happened with Detroit and you have consolidation. Mm-hmm. And so they become these, they have these incredibly powerful and research branches that do all these sorts of things. But they're not kind of seeding new companies. And so what happens to Detroit in this, you know, by the 1960s? Oh, there are these Japan, Japanese car companies that are coming up that are making cars in a much more efficient way. They're using new technology. They have brand new factories. And then you, that collides with the oil 
um, crisis of the seventies and these giant, <laughs> massive cars made in Detroit. There's no, there's no longer cheap oil and these are gas guzzlers. You know, the market just drops out and Detroit has been struggling for global market share ever since and having, and having to go, you know, get a lot of bailouts. And I know that that may make people in tech feel really uncomfortable that like I'm comparing the valley to Detroit, but it's not like all the rule, economic rules get broken and, and, you know, go out the window just because this is a sort of a new economy. We've had new economy industries before mm. the, the rules are going to still apply. <laughs> and so right. I, I think there's, I, I, you look back, you see the kind of generative effects of, of regulation on industrial innovation. And it's not just from breaking up companies that actually is something that happens more rarely in the U.S. than, than just mm. regulating them. But when you have a regulated monopoly, you have, you know, there are these sort of pivotal moments where consent decrees become these generative moments. So one really great one that's very Valley specific is in 1956, AT&T, which had been a regulated monopoly for about half a century, it was since 1914, so about 40 years. It kept on trying to get out of its, so the terms of its, of its being allowed to provide universal telephone service was that telephones had to be its game and it could not get into other lines of business, especially computers, which of course it totally wanted to because it was computers. So they kept on trying to do it and, and get swatted back by the DOJ. And so in 1956, the Department of Justice imposed a consent decree between DOJ and AT&T, um, said that all of the, the transistor, which was a product of Bell Labs, which was AT&T's industrial research arm, had to be, they had to license it for free. They had to just give it away to other companies. And then successor technologies had to be licensed pretty cheaply. So they had to just share their goodies, right? They had this incredible industrial research operation, amazing. And they couldn't keep it all for themselves to build their own products. And so that, you know, that's the transistor. That is the core technology on which, you know, silicon chips, integrated circuits, like everything is built. Like this is, so Gordon Moore, who's, you know, Moore's Law, founder of Intel, co-founder of Intel, like legendary Gordon Moore, not, and who, who I don't think would call himself a big government guy. <laughs> he's a free enterprise guy. He's a business leader. He later said, you know, we probably would not have had a silicon semiconductor business in the Valley without that consent decree. Cause it opened up all of a sudden these tiny little companies, these startups can be like, Oh, I can take this technology and I can iterate on it and I can build products and commercialize and blah, 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 blah. So that's, I, I would imagine that founders <laughs> would be entrepreneurs would really like to see that sort of, you know, those openings being created. AT&T continued to make scads of money, continued to, you know, be a source of a lot of innovative products. Um, it eventually was broken up in the eighties, <laughs> but it kind of allowed itself to be because it really wanted to get in the computer business by that point. And, um, you know, the, these things don't have to be an either or like we don't have to sort of stay with the status quo and say, well, this is the way that the magic happens and we can't mess with it. You know, and that's, I think, where these historical examples can be super helpful in thinking about, again, yeah. plotting out how you navigate this business environment. OK, so one last question. Mm -hmm. So you have a quote as your book moves into the early 2010s, chasing fast car fast money on apps and games that appeal to a narrow demographic of young, educated urbanites. The Valley seemed to be out of ideas. And that was followed by a Peter Thiel quote from 2011. We wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what would we need to change to get Silicon Valley to start innovating beyond the digital? Yeah. 
Well, I think, uh, well, first, I think we need to recognize and elevate that there's a lot of really interesting innovation going on that isn't always getting written up and getting the mm. attention it deserves. Yeah. I think, but, uh, you know, I, I think again, you know, historical sort of bigger economic and political inflection points can create space for something to change. Um, if, for example, and I think, again, there's this sort of, we're getting, we've been talking about clean tech long enough. The Valley attempted it once and then like Washington backed off. So it didn't really get, they got burned. But I think there's, you know, there are a lot of technologies that are poised to, to scale and to kind of push the Valley in a new direction. If you have, I think, you know, government investment and, and incentives, mm-hmm. um, for the private sector are going to be really critical. This is not like the government should take over. This is the government should have make some really smart, very kind of broadly defined incentives, put money out there, put money into the system and create something for people to chase. And that's, that's really generative. I think the other thing is the people, you know, it's, it's the tech industry is changing. It is very gradually diversifying, but also I think this generation of folks, you know, whether you call it, you know, Gen Z or younger millennials are kind of coming in with an awareness and a desire to, um, they're not kind of taking the, we're changing the world at face value. They're like, no, you're changing the world, but maybe not for the better. And I would like to do something different. I think there's also a sort of shift in values systems in terms of, I don't want to work myself to, you know, the end of time. Like, I, I think I have other things I care about. And the other super interesting thing that I'm watching really closely is truly how the geography is changing. So maybe one of the things that changes the valley is that the valley kind of moves further out of the valley. Like the valley is now a shorthand for the global tech industry. Mm. But now you have tech clusters, like significant tech clusters in other places in the US and around the world that are their own kind of ecosystems that are getting achieving maturation. Um, the valley's real secret now is time. It's just been at it for so long that it's mm-hmm. has, has this monopoly on very specific expertise. But we're seeing other places, you know, Seattle in the time, the 17 years I've lived here, I moved here from the Bay Area and I, in 2004. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's all Microsoft and maybe a little Amazon. And where are the startups? I don't see them. It was very, I mean, there were startups, but it was just a totally different vibe. Now you've got angels, you've got accelerators, you've got incubators, you've got tons of startups, you've got small to medium sized enterprises, you have large sort of homegrown enterprises like Tableau, for example, that have kind of scaled up and gone huge. You know, there's just a lot going on. And and we see this as a smaller scale in a whole bunch of other places. And then COVID and remote work is really shaking things up. And now, you know, I was on a panel uh, this week with a group of um, talking about sort of global investment opportunities and investors were sort of noting that, well, now you, people have realized you can do a Zoom call and they aren't. So they're kind of more comfortable with the idea that I could invest in some place that's in, you know, Winnipeg. Mm, <laughs> they don't have to move, right. in, you know, I don't have to be in the same place. I don't have to travel to see them. I And, and that's going to be super interesting because we, especially when you have these incredibly overheated housing markets in the Bay Area and other things that are kind of driving companies and employees out or disincentivizing them to, to come there. Great. Well, thank you so much for yeah. taking the time. This was really great. I, yeah. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the show. If you found value in today's episode, we would appreciate your rating on iTunes, or if you could tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. 
I'm also available as a business coach. You can learn more about my services at lucentpathways.com. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world.